2: But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.
3: Hang up and listen is sponsored by SAP HANA. SAP HANA helps the world's best companies get the answers they need to become more agile, develop new streams of revenue, predict the future and reimagine the way they do business. Run SAP and run simple. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of September 8th, 2015. On this week's show, we're going to discuss the final, but maybe not actually final, resolution of Deflategate. Deflategate with the federal judge vacating Tom Brady's four-game suspension and Roger Goodell looking like an enormous fool, the poor guy. We'll also talk about the Washington football team's latest clown showery, with the team benching Robert Griffin III after maybe botching his neurological exam and the general manager's wife accusing an ESPN reporter of trading sexual favors for scoops. And Yahoo! baseball writer Jeff Passan will join us. To assess the back and forth between the New York Mets, Matt Harvey, and Harvey's agent Scott Boris, who have been arguing for the last week about whether the star pitcher should stop pitching prior to the playoffs to protect his arm. We are all discombobulated geographically this week. I'm not in DC. I'm up in New York to go to the US Open, so not joining me in Washington, DC, but in Washington, DC himself is Stefan Fatsis, author of the book's Word Freak, and a few seconds of panic.
0: Hello, Stefan. Hi, Josh. You were up late last night.
3: I was. Federer, Isner, 7-6, 7-6, 7-5.
0: It went late, but I like it. I like tennis, you guys. One one break in three sets.
3: One break in three sets, yeah. Federer, magical. So magical. (laughs) That was meant as a joke, but I just need to make it clear (laughs) so I don't feel like the embodiment of a cliche. He was magical, is what you're saying. He was, but... I'm very conscious of I was very that very, other people think that. I was very thrown by his outfit, though. It was the,
0: as I think I texted you during the match, it was the fettiest outfit possibly of all time.
3: There was some debate from the stands about whether it was hot pink or orange. It looked kind of pink on television,
0: um, but I couldn't be sure. I was wondering the same thing, whether there was a little orange tint in there. It might have been a salmon-y sort of thing. Yeah, someone was definitely... I was
3: watching with described it as electric salmon.
0: Electric salmon. That's what I was just going to say.
3: So the great thing about being in New York is that that's where Mike Pesca is, except that Mike Pesca is not here. He's on vacation this week. But let me take you back to D.C. We're filling in for Pesca as a man who's been featured in the America's Best Sports Bogging Anthology at least four times, whose Twitter bio identifies him as a sports blogger columnist person for The Washington Post. It's the illustrious, well-prepared Dan Steinberg. Hello, Dan.
4: Hey, Josh, I am prepared, and I felt I thought that you had invited me onto this podcast because I'm such an expert on these particular matters, but it's only because Pesca's on vacation?
3: It's because Pesca's on vacation, and we're looking for someone who was an expert in these particular matters. It was that kind of decision tree, that order of operations.
4: Cool. I'm just going to put that out of my mind and <laughs> fall forward here. <laughs>
3: All right. This is an audition. Pesca, you know, maybe if you're really good, he'll never be invited back. Um, In our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, I didn't mean that, Mike. I did not mean that. I'm just trying to make our guest feel good about himself so he performs well. On our bonus segment for Slate Plus members this week, we're going to talk to Dan Steinberg about what it's like to write a sports column, to be a sports columnist person circa... 2015 for a newspaper. To hear that segment and others like it on Hang Up and Listen and other Slate shows like the Culture Gabfest Fest and the Political Gabfest. Fest, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash hangout plus. You can get a free two-week trial by going to that same URL slate.com slash hangout plus. Last week around the seven-month mark of our national conversation about deflated balls, federal judge Richard Berman ruled that Patriots quarterback Tom Brady's Four-game suspension should be vacated and Brady will be on the field for the defending Super Bowl champions when they kick off the NFL season against the Steelers this Thursday night. Berman's ruling was about process, not whether anyone intentionally deflated footballs at Brady's direction. In his decision, Berman buried the knife into Goodell by writing, The court is fully aware of the deference afforded to arbitral decisions, but nevertheless concludes that the award should be vacated. So basically saying... I never do this, but you're so terrible that I just have to do it. The reasons cited by the judge for vacating the decision include the fact that the NFL Players Association's attorney's weren't allowed to question the league's general counsel, that the league was inconsistent and confusing and explanations for what rules and bylaws Brady was being suspended under, and that it claimed it had the authority to suspend him for four games because that's how long guys get suspended for using steroids, which Berman helpfully pointed out is not the same thing as deflating balls or at least deflating footballs. This is now the fifth case the NFL has lost on appeal in just the last few years. And a story, uh, Stefan, just came out, a Don Van Natta investigative joint on Outside the Lines that makes Goodell look even worse, basically arguing in a very well-reported way that this is a makeup call for Spygate. So we've talked for years on this podcast about what is going to finally do Goodell in. I think this might be the thing.
0: It's going to do Goodell in?
3: Yeah. And also
0: simultaneously possibly do the Patriots in. The Don Van Natta and Seth Wickersham bylined story for ESPN is an absolute blockbuster in the journalistic sense. They clearly spent months and months. They've interviewed dozens and dozens of people and effectively here prove that the Patriots cheating pre-Spygate was an orchestrated, well-run, long-term, ingrained Operation. It was part of the team's daily operations and the investigation by Goodell, they show, was cursory, quick and concluded in a way that was favorable to Bob Kraft and the Patriots because Kraft had been Goodell's longtime benefactor and the guy that basically got him elected commissioner. It, it, it is an incredible indictment. Venata and Wickersham draw on numerous sources, including previously unreported Senate investigations by Arlen Specter, former Senator Arlen Specter staff of former Patriots employees and other documents. It is it is a, a devastating for the NFL piece of reporting, whether the NFL will Teflon its way out of this. Um, we'll see.
3: So the conclusion that, he makes that Vinat and Wickersham make based on their reporting is that other owners were pissed at the sense that Kraft and the Patriots were getting better treatment from Goodell than they deserved because of the close relationship between Kraft and mm-hmm. the commissioner. And there's a great detail in there about how the tapes from Spygate were literally ground up with like a boot heel. Um, By the NFL's <laughs> general counsel. <laughs> It's an
0: expense. It was an expensive, expensive
3: heal. Yeah. How much does a do, do you charge per hour for a lawyer to grind a tape into the ground? And the, they were beta. The, there is now uh, a split among ownership with respect to whether Goodell is you know should be fired, whether he's taking heat for the league in a way that any commissioner would be taking heat, or whether the league could be making more money, could be, you know, managed better by another commissioner. And Dan, the judge kind of very carefully and specifically separated out the Patriots cheating from Goodell's handling of it. And do you think that those kind of separations are going to be maintained or whether this is just going to define Goodell, the Patriots cheating, his handling of it, whether it's all just going to be his legacy?
4: You know, I think the cheating stuff is going to define the Patriots, and it's going to define Belichick, and this story is going to be item one in that definition. I think that doesn't really, to me, and I know Stefan doesn't exactly agree, that doesn't really relate to the deflategate stuff, because the makeup, this this makeup theory doesn't really work for me, because if you read every step of the way what happened to deflategate, it's still a ridiculous scandal with a ridiculous conclusion based on ridiculous evidence and a bad process that was overturned by a judge. I I think that Deflategate makes Goodell look terrible, whatever his motivations were. If his motivations were making up for past mistakes, it doesn't change the fact that everything that he did in this case makes him and the NFL look bad. And I think, to me, what's likely to change would be Goodell being... You know, jury and executioner for these discipline cases on players because I, th- I think that people throughout the league can recognize if they keep losing over and over again in federal court, something needs to change because it makes them look bad and they're not getting the results they want, anyhow. So I think, regardless of any mistakes that were made with all of this Patriots cheating stuff from six, seven, eight years ago, the process was broken and did not work for the deflate gate. And and honestly, I I don't know that this makes Tom Brady look any worse. He wasn't one of the masterminds of any of this spygate stuff. And I still think that he doesn't look bad in the Deflategate stuff.
0: Well, in terms of the spygate stuff, I think the open question is, did anyone in the Patriots organization say, you know, we probably shouldn't be doing this? This is wrong.
4: You think that the quarterback would stand up to the...
0: No, I don't think that the quarterback would stand up, though I do think that the quarterback in this team certainly had the ability to say, how are we getting this? Is this okay? Um, I don't know that he would, but in the back of his mind, I'm sure Tom Brady wondered whether it was appropriate for him to basically know what defensive formations the Pittsburgh Steelers were running or what defensive formations the uh, Tennessee Titans were running in the Super Bowl.
4: I bet you he did not worry about that. I bet you he was glad to have that information and that any player on any team would be glad. I, I don't think that, that players feel bad for winning in the NFL. And I, I would say that probably a good number of them, before Spygate became an issue, didn't know that this was illegal. It wouldn't seem on the surface to me that it would be something that would be illegal. Obviously, we all know now that it was mm-hmm. after all the stuff that happened in Spygate, but teams are I mean these signals are being given in front of eighty thousand people, like Belichick likes to say you wouldn't assume that this is somehow proprietary
3: so the confusing thing about this whole deflategate scandal was that whether it's you know columnist people like Dan Steinberg or normal people like uh, football fans, you sort of have to choose between whether you want to see the Patriots punished an organization that it seems like has cheated deliberately. And in Deflategate, it seems obvious that they were bending, stretching, breaking the rules. Or if you wanted to see Goodell and the NFL get its comeuppance for all of its judge, jury, and executionerness, And what I think the Van Natta-Wickersham story accomplishes is it gives you a framework to basically say they're both terrible. Mm-hmm. And it all is sort of of a piece that there was, you know, there's a multi-step process here, as Dan Steinberg likes to say, whereby the Patriots and the NFL are sort of complicit in this uh kind of badness um, that right.
0: Well, they're complicit <laughs> in a lot of
3: things. I mean, lying to the public,
0: Goodell lying to his bosses repeatedly during Spygate, the extent of the cheating. The nature of the incompetence, the sportocrat hubris nature of both the investigation and the subsequent treatment of it. This case is closed. There's no more evidence. The gift giving and backslapping and makeup calls by the NFL as a course of doing business and clearly. In the case of Spygate, something that, you know, that the, while the Patriots say, oh, we didn't gain much advantage from it, and oh, we weren't that competent at figuring this stuff out, and oh, it didn't happen that often, that all it takes is making the right call in one play to turn a game. And opponents, whom Vanetta and Wickersham track down and talk to former assistant coaches and head coaches, agree that... Yeah, that happened.
4: Well, of course they agree because it makes them look better. I, honestly, I can't believe I'm being in the position here to be a Patriots defender. But yeah, an unnamed Carolina executive is going to say, "Oh, I, I can't prove that this made a difference, but I'm convinced that it did." Every losing team forever wants to make an excuse for why they lost. I mean, maybe it did, but being anonymous and saying I can't prove it isn't really a strong argument. I don't know, but so to get
0: apart, get away from the whether you know a touchdown happened that might not have happened otherwise. When you look at the NFL's role in this. It is, again, we come, we've talked about this before. It's about how the NFL conducts itself as a business with tremendous hubris, tremendous overreach, and a blind spot the size of Uzbekistan when it comes to understanding how they will be viewed and how they're viewed, you know, by me anyway, is as arrogant and naive. In how they approach the public and how they conduct their business you know whether Tom Brady deflated or ordered footballs to be deflated is not a criminal matter it didn't need it to be proved beyond a reasonable doubt all they needed was some preponderance of evidence some indication that something wrong happened here and they had that And they didn't need to prove that there was an effect on the game all they had to show was that there was some knowledge that they attempted to skirt this rule and whether every quarterback in the NFL does this or not is beside the point. They did it.
4: I can't believe this is you speaking. Why? You're a reasonable person. I am a reasonable did person. Read, did you read the Wells report? Yeah. I mean, it was mind-numbingly stupid. I don't. I don't. Because think that it I got lost in the
0: obf- obfuscation of, of of with all these irrelevancies. The science was irrelevant here. The question was, did Tommy from Quincy, who went into the bathroom let some air out of the footballs because that's what the Patriots always did because Tommy liked the ball this way.
4: Right. That is the question. Did he do so? Yes. D- did he do so in an illegal manner? That is the question. And I would not want to stake my life on the answer to that question. And neither would I, which is why Roger Goodell
0: merely escalated the problem by throwing the book at Tom Brady. It should have just been, you know, there's a possible violation of the integrity of the game here. Humiliate Brady and the Patriots publicly and stop it from happening again.
4: Yeah, maybe, you know, I think maybe I was wrong earlier when saying that we shouldn't be linking these two because obviously the story made clear that some owners wanted blood. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so and so if Goodell felt this mandate that he had to find the Patriots guilty and he had to come down hard, then
3: I guess that is the reason that this became such a ridiculous fiasco. As we get into the wrap up section of this segment, what I find interesting is that, you know, the NFL likes to point out that the commissioner's powers are collectively bargain. But I wonder with the NFL just losing appeal after appeal in federal court, if that actually ended up being a bad thing for the NFL, because it gave Goodell and I assume, you know, the NFL owners who he serves at their pleasure, it gave him the sense that he could really, you know, control this discipline process in a manner that was pretty unaccountable, inconsistent, and just kind of pointing to the collective bargaining agreement and saying, you know, basically I can do this. Then just having repeatedly federal judges say, no, you can't. So I wonder if that great power that he had is what's going to end up biting him in the end. Well, or but maybe
0: it's just power, that he's not a lawyer. But he, the great just... power, Josh, is supposed to be tempered by his bosses. Roger Goodell doesn't have the ultimate authority to do whatever he wanted just because the CBA says that he can. He has 32 bosses, and they have allowed him to repeatedly make the same mistake. And that seems to me to be the problem. If the 32 owners are embarrassed by what happened in Spygate and Deflategate and every misstep by Roger Goodell in between, then maybe they're employing the wrong guy.
4: You know, as I sit here right now, I feel like looking back on this era 20 years from now, I can't imagine there's going to be a lot of football fans who really care that much how long Roger Goodell remained in power and how he handled player discipline. But I think, again, as I sit here today, right now, there's going to be a whole lot of people who doubt the Patriots and who will forever think the Patriots were cheaters, who didn't deserve those three Super Bowls. And, you know, Goodell bears some responsibility for that. He didn't do anything to make people confident. He talks constantly about the integrity of the game. And there are going to be doubts that never go away about the integrity of some of those wins.
3: Yeah, but... I think this, when we look back 20 years from now, whether Goodell is gone in a couple months or in a couple years, this will be the final straw, not because it's anything more outrageous, but it's just going to tip the balance to, you know, the more owners thinking and realizing that he's not the guy to be in this position. And it's an embarrassment to the league, you know, continually losing in court. It shifts the balance of power more towards the players who can now challenge basically anything that he does and think that there's a likelihood of success. And I think with this reporting, I think, again, a majority of owners will look and think that Goodell is acting capriciously and that there's not really any consistency to what he does and that the, you know, replacement level commissioner would do a better job. And I think there would just be a PR bump from hiring somebody who's Adam Silver-esque and just being able to say the right things.
4: Uh, Josh, I believe that 10 years from now, when I am invited to the studio to fill in for Mike, Roger Goodell will still be the commissioner of the NFL. All
3: right. We'll see. We'll see about that, Dan. We'll see. All right, now time for a word from our sponsor this week, SAP HANA, which helps the world's best businesses rise above complexity and get answers to questions most other companies don't even think to ask, so they can become more agile, increase capacity, develop new streams of revenue, predict the future instead of just reacting to the present, and totally reimagine the way they do business. It's simple. The answer is SAP HANA. Run SAP. Run Simple. Run Simple. Visit SAP.com slash reimagine to learn more. All right, so we just spent a segment talking about an NFL team that is uh, an evil genius, if you will. I would not describe the NFL team based out of our nation's capital as anything resembling genius, maybe evil, a joke run by an idiot owner who clings to his team's offensive nickname as his franchise year after year, invents new ways to embarrass and debase itself. The latest news out of what Washington Post blogger, columnist person Dan Steinberg calls Ashburnistan is that quarterback slash pile of broken body parts, Robert Griffin III, was diagnosed with a concussion, cleared by an independent neurologist, de-cleared by the same independent neurologist, and then benched for what seems like the season, all while the quarterback himself said little more than, I just work here. Then, in response to reporting on the team's machinations by ESPN's Diana Russini, the wife of the Washington general manager accused the reporter of being her husband's side chick and of trading blowjobs for stories. But that is not even the best part. The team first said the tweets came from a fake account and then mere hours later admitted that the tweets were real and the general manager's wife apologized for them. It's clear, Dan, that if anyone affiliated with this franchise, says that it's raining, they'll issue an apology for pissing on your shoes an hour later, then deny that they actually did anything wrong, then sue you for suggesting otherwise. So the question is, why is this franchise so much more dysfunctional than other sports franchises? Is it all a function of the owner being that much worse than other sports owners?
4: I mean, I think it's gotten to the point where there's not a more compelling answer than that. And it's probably been at that point for five, six, seven years. I don't know who else you would put the onus on for all these things happening year after year after year. I think you could say their approach to public relations has consistently been bad. And I think that has taken away the benefit of the doubt for them on so many things, which is why you get cases like the team publicly saying this is a fake account. NFL security is looking into it everything's
3: going to be taken care of. And then three hours later, reversing course. And it wasn't just... They didn't ground the tweet into the ground with their boots. <laughs>
4: yeah. It wasn't just that they um, were answering questions from people who called. They were actually proactively reaching out to people, including at least one fan on Twitter who has the ear of a lot of other Redskins fans to say, hey, can you let people know this is a fake account? Which she did, which was then proven to be a lie that she was then complicit in based on just uh, a bad, failing public relations approach. But ultimately, I think this all has to go back to the guy who is in charge of the GM and in charge of the head coach and in charge of the PR people and in charge of the quarterback. And, you know, for 15 or 16 years, that has been Dan Snyder. So I can't imagine a scenario in which he does not bear responsibility for this. Can I say, Josh, it's amazing to me that on this podcast, we say blowjobs, but we don't say the name of the Washington <laughs> football team. <laughs>
3: blowjobs are not offensive. Uh, Yeah, I don't find them offensive. Okay. Please. (laughs) (laughs) Stefan, what are your thoughts on this? Fish
0: thinks from the head, right? So, what you have in well run sports franchises, almost across the board, is an owner who delegates responsibility wisely, who has some general understanding of good business practices and principles, who hires people. And allows them to do their jobs. Who does not intrude constantly? Um, who trusts people? Dan Steinberg is not that person. Dan Steinberg, sorry. I'm not. <laughs> Dan I Steinberg not. is not that person either. Dan <laughs> Snyder is not that person. But it has escalated to the point where you do wonder, like, how is this even possible? That it is so embarrassing. The thing with Scott McLuhan and his new wife, by the way, the most embarrassing part of that seemed to be to me that she was accusing him publicly of having had an affair which is kind of weird. So, And this is a recovering alcoholic who, in an ESPN story by Seth Wickersham, also admitted to still drinking but saying, hey, I've got it all under control. This is a guy that was effectively let go by two other NFL teams because of his personal problems, who was hired in Washington and hailed as the savior. And maybe he's been doing great, and maybe they are on the player personnel road to recovery. But a team that I can guarantee
3: that that's not true, but go ahead. (laughs) I, I understand that.
0: But a team that continually steps in it and makes the kinds of sort of bold, outlandish trades and player personnel signings and public statements and continually displays the most rudimentary failures in public relations how they treat fans, how they treat reporters, how they Talk about themselves you know, is doomed to failure. I mean, this is a, a, a long standing issue. Now, this team is an absolute laughing stock in a league that is becoming a laughing stock to fans that pay attention to stuff like Deflate Gate and Spygate.
3: A laughing stock among laughing stocks.
4: I don't know if I agree that the league. To most fans is a laughing stock. No, I, I do, didn't say to
0: most fans, I said to like fans that care about this stuff.
3: But
4: I, I do think the Redskins have turned into that. And I think what they've done now is they've set themselves under like a microscope where every action that they take is scrutinized in a way that it wouldn't be in other cities. And I think that's totally fair. They've set themselves up for that. But we get every website in the country last week writing about the team's will call policies. Now it seems outrageous that they they charge fifty dollars for non season ticket holders to leave tickets at Will Call. (laughs) It does seem outrageous. But I don't know I just don't know for sure that stories would get picked up in the same way if if it weren't involving the Redskins. And to give one example, last year I reported that the Redskins were selling out of date World Cup beer to fans during home games that had expired weeks ago. And this got picked up by countless outlets and did great web traffic for us. A couple days later I reported that the Orioles were doing the same thing. Same beers, same expired beers, same high prices same World Cup logos, and no one cared, and no one paid any attention to it. Now, maybe partly this is the NFL versus Major League Baseball, but I think a huge factor is people want to take whacks at the Redskins now. And it's again, they've, they've made their own bed here, but they're going to get scrutinized like crazy for everything, and that's why they can't make a quarterback change in any kind of normal way. The Bills had kind of a controversial quarterback situation this summer, and they wound up releasing the guy who was supposed to be the starter and going with a totally unproven Tyrod Taylor here and it's not a national story in any sense. It's a footnote. And when Washington makes a quarterback change, for all of those reasons we've talked about, I, we, I mean, I understand Robert Griffin III is not the same as Tyrod Taylor. I understand that. I understand that. But they can't do anything quietly and peacefully now. Everything is a major story. And they have to get away from that somehow.
3: It's good, though. I mean, it's a pattern of behavior. It's sort of like we've talked about you know the Atlanta Falcons piped in crowd noise. If the Patriots had done that, Don Van Natta would have written fifty thousand words on uh, you know <laughs> which uh, employees uh, had had been responsible on the on the volume knob. But it is a pattern of behavior, and they deserve more scrutiny because of their consistent terribleness. I, and I don't it, disagree. The story over the summer it was
4: just a kind of throwaway thing that I did for fun, where they presented a report to the city of Richmond saying that seven point eight billion people had read coverage of training camp in 2014. That's more than there are people on planet Earth. And it was just kind of funny, but again, it became a national story and part of the Redskins storyline that they are claiming that more people than exist on planet
3: Earth have read about their training camp in Richmond. You sure like to say that nickname, Dan. You, you love yeah, to say Yeah, I, I hear you myself rel- say it. And you relish I, it. You relish it.
4: It is a part of my everyday conversation. I. I I I would almost be in a position of wanting to defend Scott McLuhan and the team, though, because you both seem skeptical that he could set things
3: right. Well, let's go back to RG3 first, because if (laughs) if this was just Team X, then I still think objectively it's interesting how they've destroyed him. And even if you don't go back the, you know, four years or however long it's been when He was the rookie of the year. They traded the entire draft for him. And then they left him in a crumpled heap on the field during a playoff game. If you just looked at it over the last two weeks and the way that the concussion was handled and him saying, I just work here, that's not a normal thing that happens in every NFL city. That didn't happen in Buffalo. So can you explain what the hell happened with the concussion stuff and the independent neurologist? And do you have any idea of what actually went down?
4: I don't. And they have not done a good job of making this clear. And I think that's one of the reasons why every conspiracy theory in the book continues to circulate among fans and even among media members. I I don't know what happened. From the moment that he got hurt and they diagnosed his concussion, there were conflicting reports on whether he even had a concussion. And that started right away, That the night that he got hurt against Detroit. Then Griffin was not made available to speak to reporters until the following Wednesday or Thursday. Thursday, I believe. But he was practicing three days later and that felt weird right away and everyone who was there thought that that felt weird that he was practicing in a hot sun in the afternoon with a helmet on with a helmet and on, shoulder pads three days after he had gotten hurt now they said it was non-contact practice which they say went according to the NFL's concussion protocol if you read it there are a lot of steps that you have to pass between getting hurt and that non-contact practice well, he passed
0: one at three in the afternoon one at 6 p.m. One at 9 p.m., one at midnight. He was good.
4: So it felt suspicious right away. And and obviously, at any point, if you fail, you're supposed to take some kind of a cooling off period, which I believe is something like 48 hours, although the concussion protocol is very, very vague on time frames because it says every case is different, which makes sense to me. It should be vague on time frames, probably. Mm -hmm. But no one thought that the time frame was going to be three days. And then they didn't let him speak. And when he did speak, he wouldn't confirm that he had a concussion and he wouldn't say which play he got hurt on. And so again, with these conspiracy theories about did he even have a concussion? It wasn't put to rest, and and people were still confused. And, and again, then- and
0: again, a lot of this comes down to communications, which we just talked about. Griffin practices near the end of that week, like what was it Thursday? Down, he was cleared to play in the following preseason game. A day after that, though, the team issues a statement. Um, attributed to the NFL's independent neurologist or AM independent neurologist saying that he's not cleared. The statement itself was badly written. The language was not clear about who had done what examination and what they had actually analyzed. Um, and then a few days later, this independent neurologist announced or the NFL announced that he had resigned from this role. And it's learned that this guy had treated a former uh, Major League Soccer player, Aleko Eskandarian, who went on Twitter and just ripped this doctor, basically calling him a quack, who misdiagnosed and allowed him to play after he had suffered, you know, concussion X in a series that ultimately led him to leave the
3: sport. But if you're a fan of this team, Dan, it's like the Bible. Like, if you believe everything that they say, it doesn't make any sense. There's, like, no internal consistency. It's like every statement contradicts every previous statement. So even if you want to give them the benefit of the doubt, it just doesn't make, you can't make heads or tails of of anything. And that, I I I think, leads the national media to kind of swoop in and, you know, say, you know, again, like present every possible scenario. And then everyone, you know, is willing to believe anything that anyone says just because the team, nothing that they say makes any sense.
4: I agree with you on on virtually all of that, but I do think what they wound up doing in this case, if you believe them, and again, maybe you don't believe them, but what they wound up doing is being more cautious probably than necessary with a concussion. And that presumably is what most thinking fans would want an NFL team to do. If there's any doubt whatsoever about a guy who's already had two previous concussions, At at least two previous concussions, and there's any question about whether he should be out there in a contact situation you would want them to show caution and that's apparently what they did
0: except that they didn't you know they didn't and then they did because
4: of the practice situation right it's confusing but the nfl's concussion protocols do distinguish between non-contact and contact situations
0: in any event josh it's You know, the the bigger picture here is how this franchise treated this athlete and how this athlete presented himself to the public, how he has acted in public. And neither of those things has been particularly
4: good. And, you know, you know what I think is interesting is I think the national consensus, if there is one on this issue, is more sympathetic to the player than the team. And I think locally, the player has lost a great, great deal of sympathy for a lot of reasons. You talk about how the team left him crumpled on The field in that playoff game. Well, that was the head coach at the time who did that. And the head coach got blown out of town because the quarterback basically said, I'm not running your plays anymore. I think he lost a lot of sympathy out of that episode. I think when he goes up at a press conference and won't confirm what happened to him and says, I just work here, I think a lot of people have lost sympathy. And then when they see him not able to run an NFL offense, I don't think that locally there's a great deal of sympathy for him anymore. Among some people, there certainly is, but I think some people think that he is a failed player
3: local sports fan mad that player does not lead team to victory it's like news news at 11. Well, uh, yeah
4: but I don't I don't you know Achilles Smith do we do we blame the Bengals for Achilles Smith do we well, blame Achilles the, Smith
3: was a rookie of the year before his its franchise you you're know right, decided you're he, right but
4: he this was damaged
3: goods this quarterback blew the coach out of town who made him rookie of the year who
4: helped make him rookie of the year
3: and who destroyed his his uh, body and ability to play. Um, final uh, question. I don't think you and I agree about this very much. Josh. I don't think so. But that makes for good radio. All of the reports from ESPN and elsewhere that seem to be emerging from inside the team, just as consumer of NFL media, it strikes me just anecdotally that there are more leaks coming from the team than other teams? And A, does that strike you as being true? And B, would it be reasonable to infer that that means that there's just like dissension in that building and that everyone, you know, nobody trusts anybody and people are just, you know, spouting off to anyone who'll listen?
4: I think that my sense is there are more leaks. And I think that is a reasonable inference. But I do think the most important Thing that's going to come out of the Scott McLuhan wife tweets that we mentioned earlier, the blowjob tweets. If I can use that word again, <laughs> it's like the it, Pentagon. That, it's
3: like the Pentagon papers. Yeah, blowjob <laughs> tweets.
4: <laughs> is that, regardless of any personal problems in there? There's definitely an implication that Scott McLuhan has been talking to Diana Rossini and has been a source for Diana Rossini, who is the ESPN reporter who reported that ownership was getting in the way of what the football people wanted to do with this team. And I think if you're the owner of the team and within a couple months you can sense that your GM is helping feed negative reports about you to ESPN, I think there's probably a potential for some long-term problems there. And so whether we should or shouldn't be optimistic about what Scott McLuhan is doing with the roster, I think we should definitely not be optimistic about the long-term potential for him to remain in Washington. I think
0: the commissioner of the National Football League should have more power – to get rid of owners like Dan Snyder, don't you? That's just what we need.
3: (laughs) All right. It is time for our last topic of the day, and that is a baseball one. One of the main reasons for the New York Mets' success this year is pitcher Matt Harvey, who started the All-Star Game in 2013 before partially tearing the ulnar collateral ligament in his right elbow Harvey, like many, many, many pitchers of this generation, had Tommy John surgery as a result of that injury and missed all of 2014 before coming back very well this season. He's ninth in earned run average and tenth in wins above replacement among all major league starting pitchers. But then last week, Harvey's agent Scott Boris started telling anyone who would listen the doctors had recommended that Harvey not exceed 180 innings pitched this season. Given that he's already thrown 166 and two-thirds innings, that meant Harvey shouldn't pitch in the playoffs if the Mets make it that far. Mets management expressed shock and dismay at this claim, while Harvey himself hymned and hawed before publishing a piece in the Players' Tribune headlined, I will pitch in the playoffs, which kind of eliminates the need for anyone to read the article. But what do I know? I'm just a simple country editor. Joining us... Now to discuss all of this is Jeff Passan, who writes about baseball for Yahoo, and whose book on Tommy John surgery called The Arm is being published by HarperCollins this coming April. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you for having me, gentlemen. How are you? I'm doing very well. And I look forward to you uh, being able to cut through the Tommy John BS. Because like the 180 innings thing that is clearly not scientifically backed, you know, peer-reviewed study of um, how pitchers come back from Tommy John surgery. This is all kind of junk science, and all the parties here are kind of acting in their own self-interest, right, or what they perceive to be their self-interest. Um, but if the broader global point here is to keep the specific pitcher healthy or even pitchers as a class healthy, the fascinating thing is that absolutely no one knows how to do that.
1: No, not not even the most brilliant minds who have been studying it for decades understand. And baseball is sort of backed into a corner here because with the Mets, you've got them wanting to make the playoffs and you've got them wanting to get as much out of Matt Harvey's arm as they possibly can before he signs with the Yankees in three years. and. With Matt Harvey, you've got him wanting to stay healthy, so the Yankees will pay him $200 million in three years. And with Scott Boris, you've got him wanting to ostensibly protect his client. And with doctors, you've got them sitting there sort of doing the you know emoji shoulder shrug saying, well, we don't know what's going on. And it's just this giant mess where Tommy John surgery has become almost like a rite of passage for guys these days and baseball doesn't know what to do to stop it and it is so far behind in in the effort to do that uh you know I've said this is this is far from the tip of the iceberg I mean this is you know we're we're at the point now where you're going to be seeing guys coming up and you know, a quarter, half the guys by the time they get to the major leagues might have had Tommy John surgery already. This is a whole generation of Tommy John pitchers coming up. And Matt Harvey's sort of a microcosm of the issues that we're going to have to face in the decade plus going forward, unless baseball gets this stuff together.
4: Jeff, I thought it was interesting over the weekend how negative the reaction to Harvey was. He, he got blasted on Twitter. He got blasted by media members. He got blasted by fans who, who seemed to think he was kind of wimping out or somehow letting his teammates down. And it's interesting because it's such a drastically different reaction than we saw from the Strasburg stuff two years ago or three years ago. So I, I guess I'm curious, do you think this is a New York thing? Do you think this is just a quirk of the New York market that he would get criticized so heavily? Or do you think because of what happened with Strasburg, in any city now, a player who didn't want to pitch or who was cautious about his health
3: would be treated like that. So what happened with Strasburg, just to uh, point this out before Jeff answers, is that they, the Nationals shut him down before the playoffs. He didn't pitch in the playoff series. The Nationals did not win said playoff series, and they haven't won a playoff series since. And so there's discussion over whether that was the wrong decision.
1: I think the big problem there was that it was sprung so late in the season. Like, if you're going to do an innings limit, do it like Strasburg did and plan it out before the season. And it's going to be painful and it's going to hurt. But don't just spring it on them when, you know, there's a month left in the season and the Mets look like they're going to make the playoffs for the first time in the deck in a decade. And, and I think that's why the reaction on, on Harvey was so bad.
3: There's Harvey, also the I, perception of hypocrisy that Harvey had said yes. over the last year. They're holding me back. He's like a guy who's like pretending to want to fight and they're holding him back. It's like <laughs> saying, oh, like, oh the six man rotation, that's not manly. I want to pitch every fifth day. And now he's like, you know what? I don't really want to pitch in the playoffs. Like it seems like he's uh, uh, being hypocrite.
0: Yeah. Well, clearly yeah. there was some lack of communication here among Scott Boris, Sandy Alderson, the general manager of the Mets, and Matt Harvey. Um, because this should have been planned out in advance, long in advance. I mean, it's not like there isn't some science that would lead us, or at least some general principles that would lead you to say, you know, he shouldn't throw more than X number of pitches per start. We should monitor the number of pressure pitches or leverage pitches that he throws. We should see how Matt Harvey responds later in the game, like what is an effective maximum number of pitches per outing, because we really don't want him to pitch when he's showing fatigue, because we do know that that's probably not a good thing for pitchers recovering from this surgery. And we do know that maybe there is some outer limit of the number of pitches. I mean, innings is idiotic, of course, because an inning can be three pitches or an inning can be 30 pitches. And that puts different torque and different leverage and different pressure on an arm. So I guess the question is here, Was Scott Boris reacting to the fact that there wasn't a good plan in place and trying to pressure the Mets to do something, or was he just going public because he wasn't satisfied with the plan and in the process of doing that threw Matt Harvey under the bus a
1: little bit? I I think it's probably more the latter. Because you have to understand the relationship between Scott Boris and the Mets has been bad for a long time now. He's, you know, he's had fights with Jeff Wilpon and he's had fights with Sandy Alderson. And those are two very strong-willed, strong-headed men. And when you throw Scott Boris in the mix, I mean, he's the most strong-willed, strong-headed person in the entire sport. And so uh, the fact that he was willing to go public with this tells me that behind the scenes he was not getting what he wanted.
0: And then to go back to the question I asked at the beginning, Jeff, you know, I threw out some things about innings pitched and the pressure on on pressure pitches, et cetera, et cetera. What do we know about about pitchers recovering from uh, ulnar collateral ligament surgery and what might be effective in keeping them healthy long-term?
1: We don't know a whole lot because the sample at this point is so small. That's what bothered me about The way that Scott Boris approached this by saying that Jordan Zimmerman and Steven Strasburg have stayed healthy and Chris Medlin and a couple of other guys who he referred to uh, came back and threw more innings and did not stay healthy. It's just it's not a good proxy. And uh, I can understand why he did this because that's what Scott Boris does. He takes numbers and he manipulates them to make his clients look good and to make situations, uh, you know, to bend situations to his will. But in this case, uh, Chris Medlin actually was on the most conservative track of all of them. The Atlanta Braves brought him back, and he threw in 50 games. He started 12, and he threw 140 innings coming off his Tommy John surgery. And the next inning, he jumped up to, I think, 197 innings and then had a second Tommy John after that. Uh, I don't understand why he was out there uh, in that discussion. And, and it just goes to show you, so few guys have had this that you can't say anything definitively. Ultimately, Scott Boris may be right about this, but w- there there is zero, and I mean zero, Confirmation that this is the way to go. And if you ask James Andrews, if you ask Neil Elletrosh, Matt Harvey might actually be the perfect guy to throw more innings coming off Tommy John surgery because he had an 18-month layoff, which frankly is what should be standard for guys. They get rushed back in 12 months, and I think a lot of guys get hurt because they've come back too quickly. Jeff, can I ask?
4: Do you think could a player who didn't have Tommy John surgery, a young player? who just was worried about his arms say hey for the rest of my 7 years I don't want to pitch more than 160 innings cuz I want to make sure I'm healthy for that contract. Obviously, we all sympathize with Harvey wanting to get paid because he's horribly underpaid right now. He's making $600,000 a year. And he has well, under, to yeah, survive underpaid.
3: he has to survive for 3 more years to get right, a contract. Yeah. That seems
0: impossible. <laughs> I was actually having a conversation with a friend of mine um this morning who suggested that for pitchers maybe the answer is to get them to free agency more quickly to help both teams and pitchers plan their futures better.
1: Yeah, I think the, I think the real issue is trying to pay guys when they're younger. And that, that's, a, I mean, baseball's entire economic structure would need to be overturned in order for that to sure. happen. Because, you know, if you get them to free agency after four years, then the right guys are going to be getting paid more money. I mean They've right, survived. Yeah, yeah. I mean, right now, guys get paid because they're old. I mean, that's that's really what it comes down to. Guys get paid for the worst years of their career. And that would be the right way to do it, considering we know the sweet spot in baseball right now is between ages 23 and 29. For all those years, we thought it was from 27 to 32, but that's just not the case anymore, especially with amphetamines out of the game. And so uh, in order to get guys paid the right way, of course, free agency should be earlier. And to, to your point, Dan, you know, guys trying to limit themselves in the number of innings they throw... Uh, you know, there's been talk of a six-man rotation. They... You know, there's been talk of just starting once a week. And could that help? Potentially so. But ultimately, I think it's not going to come down to the number of innings you happen to throw in a year because we've seen guys like Madison Bumgarner go out there uh, and throw 270 innings in a year and come back perfectly healthy the next year. I think it's starting when they're younger and getting people into Major League Baseball with healthier arms. And, you know, then it's incumbent upon the organization to handle the kids like they want to. But it's like, like when guys get into organizations now and they get limited to eighty or ninety innings uh, in their rookie ball year, it's just like th- these kids are damaged already. There's nothing you can do to stop the inevitability of this.
3: So not pitch
4: at all. That's what I would recommend. just, yeah. just sit yeah. out those seven years and wait until you can get a contract.
1: No, I mean that's part of the reason that I that I started writing this book. My kid is you know turning eight this month, and it's like do I really want him to pitch? I mean, he's starting kid pitch next season, and it scares the hell out of me because I, I know that I'm going to be the father whose kid ends up getting his arm injured when he wrote the damn book on the subject. And
0: well, you, you wouldn't be the first. Uh, Mark Mark Hyman wrote a book about youth sports and was that dad, and his kid did have surgery when he was
4: in high school. Yeah. Jeff, you should just have your kid play tackle football. There's no problems yeah, <laughs> with that Yeah. yeah.
3: All right, Jeff, thank you uh, so much for joining us. And, you know, if your kid does end up having surgery, you know all the best doctors. So <laughs> I, th- I think that'll I be fine. say the surgery now,
0: Jeff, when he's eight.
3: <laughs> Pre- preemptive Tommy John, exactly. Yeah. Or how yeah. about just append extra arms to his torso? I
1: think that's a great idea. I have the first forearm child in the, uh, in the world.
3: Jeff Passan writes about baseball for Yahoo. His book on Tommy John surgery is called The Arm. It is coming out this April. It is now time for afterballs. The first pitcher to get Tommy John surgery was naturally Tommy John. He had it done in 1974 and went on to win a total of 288 games. Majority of those were after his UCL was replaced. The second guy to have the surgery and return from it quote unquote successfully was a pitcher named Brent Strom, who had the procedure done in 1979, five years after John did. Strom is now the pitching coach for the Houston Astros. He was a less effective advertisement for the surgical technique that Dr. Frank Job invented. He only won 22 games, but Strom was still thankful for the chance to continue his career. He said in a recent interview that Dr. Job who died in 2014 did not forget him saying most of the time you remember your first love i think he remembered his first two ah brent strom stefan you want to go first this week sure all right what is your brent strom
0: when i was a very young boy i owned a pair of pf flyers sneakers you know why i own pf flyer sneakers because pf flyers had the built-in wedge that helped you run faster and jump higher. Really, they did. The company said so itself.
3: The only sneaker with the
1: built-in wedge that helps you run faster and jump higher.
0: That was magician Harry Blackstone in a commercial that aired in 1970, right around when I would have acquired my PF Flyers. PF Flyers looked a lot like Converse Chuck Taylors, and while they didn't predate Chucks, which hit the market in 1919, they did have a cachet all their own predicated on that wedge which was itself about science. The PF in PF Flyers stood for Posture Foundation, and it referred to a rubber insole developed by B.F. Goodrich that purportedly helped to shift and redistribute weight inside a shoe. Goodrich rolled out its first PF Flyers in 1937. The Center High, H-I, PFs that look like chucks were introduced in 1944, but the 50s and 60s were the apotheosis of PFs and of their marketing.
2: Boys and girls, and follow me. I'm Swifty Flyer. I run like the wind, jump high as the sky. I just can't be beat in my PF Flyers, the shoes that winners choose.
0: Swifty Flyer was a kind of a flat top chipmunk who looked like a thin Elroy Jetson. But that voice, Jesus, would you buy a pair of shoes from that guy? But people did. 14 million pair of PF Flyers were sold in 1958, the year the company signed Boston Celtics great Bob Cousy as a designer and spokesman. PFs later teamed up with Johnny Quest, the cartoon kid who went on adventures with his father, of all people, starting in a TV show in 1964. Johnny starred in what were dubbed PF Flyer Adventures. In this one, Johnny's buddy Race is in trouble. On the volcano, he flashes Johnny a message: "In danger, bring rope." Johnny flashes his PF magic ring, puts on his PFs, runs faster and jumps higher. Let's listen.
3: In seconds, the red
1: hot lava would reach him, but the action shoes got Johnny there first. Race was saved thanks to Johnny Quest and his action shoes, PF
3: Flyers.
0: Those PF Flyers did come with that magic ring, which was pretty cool. That had a magnifying glass, a secret compartment. A message flasher and a secret code circle. In 1971, Goodrich bailed on the shoe business. Converse bought PF Liars, but the feds ruled that the deal was an antitrust violation and PFs faded. Now, I thought America was getting along just fine without PF Liars, but New Balance revived the brand in the early aughts. And because we live when we live, two things have inevitably and depressingly occurred, retro hip marketing and litigation. First, the litigation, New Balance in December sued Converse, seeking to cancel Converse's trademark on Chuck Taylor's. That happened after Converse threatened to add New Balance to a bunch of lawsuits it had filed against makers of Chuck's knockoffs. Fuck both of them. As for the marketing, the company recently hired Todd Snyder, whom the New York Times a couple of months ago described as a, quote, tall and rumpled 47-year-old everyman with a thatch of sandy hair, a cowcatcher jaw, and a dad bod to reimagine PF Flyers for the Williamsburg crowd. And then there's this. You can order on the PF Flyers website a Swifty Flyer sweatshirt for $55.00. Which is a bargain compared to the 160 bucks for a pair of
3: Todd Snyder Rambler highs. I know what to get you for the winter holidays, Stefan.
0: The Swifty Flyer sweatshirt or the uh, the Todd Snyder Rambler highs. Just
3: the just a gift pack, just a, a, a of basket, a basket. Yeah, yeah. All right, it's Dan. To
0: me, to me, it's sad that that brand is, is retro, hipster, chic.
3: Dan wipe Stefan's eyes, pat him on the brow, and uh, tell us your Brentstrom. Brent Strom.
4: This one's actually dear to my heart, the dearest thing to my heart, Josh, I want to talk about sports gambling. Uh, According to iPost TV, the top spender on television advertising for the past seven days was not AT&T, it wasn't Warner Brothers, it wasn't Geico or Ford or McDonald's, it was DraftKings, one of the industry leaders in daily fantasy sports, which is my new favorite way to spend my disposable income. During the spring and summer, I entered a whole bunch of daily fantasy NASCAR contests, this is true, uh, (laughs) where I'm mostly lost thanks to some untimely crashes. Well, like many fantasy players, I was really waiting for the arrival of football season to start getting serious. Daily fantasy is so compelling that I've now almost entirely quit playing non-daily fantasy football, and so it was troubling for me, and I suspect for many of my peers, to find out that we're not just fighting against a bunch of other schmoes who are trying to find a reason to watch the first quarter of a Tuesday night Akron-Bowling Green matchup. We're actually fighting against professionals who are smarter than us, have better information than us, and are in this not just to waste their time, but to take our money. A fascinating Sports Business Journal story by Ed Miller and Daniel Singer last week laid out the challenges facing the so-called recreational players like me on daily fantasy sites. In the first half of the 2015 baseball season, 91% of daily fantasy profits were won by just 1.3% of daily fantasy players. The top players are wagering and winning thousands of dollars because the average recreational player like me is happily throwing a few entertainment bucks into the trash can. As the Sports Business Journal story explained, an average sports bettor in Vegas will lose the neighborhood of the house's 4.5% VIG because the large and liquid markets on popular sports games creates mostly accurate betting lines. But the player prices on these daily fantasy sites are far from perfect, and so they can't adjust to live markets. Jerky nerds with sophisticated computer models can field smarter and better lineups than a grumpy dad in search of a quick diversion. The novice player, Miller and Singer write is like Neo in The Matrix Reloaded, fighting hundreds of Agent Smiths simultaneously. But Neo won. I have never seen The
3: Matrix or The Matrix (laughs) Reloaded. Continue.
4: There are some potential solutions here. The sites could come up with more accurate pricing models. They could create a floating market of salaries to create more efficient pricing structures. There could be limits on roster construction to eliminate some of the tricks used by the pros, or limits on the number of entries from each account. But in any case, something needs to happen. These daily fantasy sites have exploded into the mainstream in the last couple years, and for good reason, because betting on sports is fun, and this is the easiest way to do so legally. But the most fun kind of betting is the type where you occasionally win. If all I'm doing this football season is subsidizing professional gamblers and their nifty algorithms, I'll probably have to find a better use for my recreational dollars.
0: These dudes are like spending like a million bucks to win 10,000, right? That's right. But God bless them.
4: Anyhow, I'm thinking about moving my money into the bingo market instead of daily fantasy.
3: (laughs) I should note that DraftKings and FanDuel have both uh, sponsored our show before, um, and our wonderful, wonderful public services. They just need to make sure that the little guy doesn't get priced out. So you see yourself more as um, bedraggled dad than jerky nerd. Is that? What, what, are those the two types? That was a
4: very close, uh, <laughs> close listening of my of my um, Brent Strom, Brent, Brent Scowcroft Was his name? <laughs> Brent <Strong>. Scowcroft. <laughs> Brent Strom. Uh, yeah, I do. I, I do because it's not about. And friends have said, "Well, you are a sports writer. You should be able to do well at this because you have inside information." It's not about having any kind of inside information. It's about having a math equation that will allow you to be. Well, let system. me ask you this: Why
0: should the the professional gambler, the expert who decides to spend tens and hundreds of hours gaming this system, be priced out of the system or be be restricted in his ability to win? I mean, that's what happens in every game of chance, skill, um, whether it's gambling in Vegas or
4: I don't think you that's know, true. Playing Scrabble. I, I think that if I go to a Vegas casino to play roulette, I have the same odds as anyone else who goes up to I the don't. table. I have worse odds?
0: I, if there are professional gamblers who have studied roulette wheels or studied craps games or studied any other game, you have worse odds.
4: Well, I liked to believe that I was <laughs> randomly losing 95% of my money on these sites. And if it's actually that I'm I'm deliberately losing <laughs> losing 150% of my money to people who are just smarter than me, then I'm going to have to walk away. Poor
3: bedraggled dad,
4: Dan Steinberg. I was going to win big, well, like $4 in my NASCAR
3: um, contest on Sunday night until Chase Elliott got in an untimely crash. Because a professional gambler, like, threw a wrench onto the track. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right, Josh, what is your Brent Strom... The other day, the indispensable John Boyce, great, great Twitter follow, he tweeted an image of an old newspaper story, an AP item from September 5th, 1971. The headline was, Mysterious Flower Bomb Falls in Dodger Infield. Here are the first 125 or so words of that story. A huge sack of flour splattered on the Dodger Stadium infield about 10 feet in front of Cincinnati shortstop Woody Woodward. There were no injuries, and officials speculated that the sack was either dropped from an airplane or catapulted into the stadium, where about 19,000 fans watched the Dodgers play the Reds. The flower landed with a, quote, real slap, said a press box observer. It left an imprint on the dirt after groundskeepers cleaned up the mess. Dodger officials reported the incident to the Federal Aviation Administration they said that no one reported hearing or seeing an aircraft pass over the stadium when the flower fell in the bottom of the fifth inning. The sack of flour was heavy enough to kill anyone it hit. That's an intriguing wire story. I hunted down a few more versions of the article, which quoted Woody Woodward, the red shortstop, saying the flower hit 15 feet from him, that it sounded like a ton of bricks, that he was still shaking. The Dodgers were reportedly investigating several low-flying planes, and the incident called to mind one from the previous year in which someone dropped several sacks of bottles onto the field, again, of totally mysterious origin. Nobody saw where they came from or knew who did it. Another piece claimed that no one reported hearing or seeing an aircraft pass over the stadium when the flower fell, that it was impossible for the flower to have been thrown from the stands. As I already noted, one thought was that the flower could have been lobbed onto the field with some sort of catapult. Flower bombs are not just something you toss on the field to try to kill a 1970s-era middle infielder. This is a classic prank, albeit one that I had never heard of until I started Googling it about 12 hours ago. You put some flour in a bag, you throw the flower at someone. It's genius! Someone did it to Kim Kardashian, to Adam Levine. Someone threw purple-dyed flower in condoms at UK Prime Minister Tony Blair. Some father's rights, uh, idiots, I presume, threw flower bombs on the 18th green at the 2006 British Open as Tiger Woods was getting ready for his third shot. There is a flower bomb challenge to save children from sex slavery, which is like the ice bucket challenge, except way weirder. The most famous sports flower bombing came in 1981 when a bunch of Kiwis disrupted a rugby match between New Zealand's All Blacks and South Africa's Springbok rugby team as a protest against apartheid. A 2006 story in the New Zealand Herald reported that these acts of protest, the flower bombs, supposedly buoyed Nelson Mandela's spirits during his long prison stint. The pilot, uh, whose named Marks Jones, told the newspaper that they s- used one-pound paper flower bombs rather than plastic ones because we wanted them to burst on impact so no one would get hurt. A player from the New Zealand All Blacks team was hit in the head and fell down, but he was definitely not killed. That is counter to what the papers were writing about the mysterious Dodgers Reds flower bomb from 1971. The San Bernardino County Sun-Telegram wrote that death would have been instantaneous if it had fallen on someone and claimed that whoever dropped the flower was a, quote, presumed idiot. I would dispute that last part, though, because it seems like the person who did this was a total genius. As far as I can tell, nobody figured out where the flower came from, much less who was responsible for it. 45 years later, if you have any information that could lead to the arrest of the perpetrator and by arrest... I mean, a parade in this person's honor, please email us at hangup com. We'll get to the bottom of the flower bomb, and we'll figure out how Dan Steinberg can win in daily fantasy. Did you try to track down Woody Woodward, former general
0: manager of the Seattle Mariners and other teams?
3: There are just a lot of Woody Woodwards in the book. So uh, no, I wasn't able to figure out which Woody Woodward it was. Um, Woody
0: Woodward hit one home run in 2,423 plate appearances in the major leagues.
3: This could be an eight part after all miniseries though, Stefan. Maybe'll mm-hmm. we'll, maybe we'll delve more into the, the different figures at play here. We'll get actors to book. reenact it. Could be, could be a book. All right, we love your feedback and what we talked about today. You can email us at hang at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hangup up, and listen on iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. Thanks to Dan Steinberg for filling in for Mike Pesca today. Good job, Dan. Thank you, Josh. Our producer is Zach Dinerstein. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. And the executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening.